0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello. I'm Steve O'Reilly, and I'm a physician scientist at the University of Cambridge. I'm interested in the causes and the consequences of obesity. Obesity is a fascinating field, one indeed which I've wandered into, both professionally and, sadly, personally, entirely by accident. However, it's a science... it's, it's a field that attracts scientists from a wide variety of disciplines. One can look at it from the point of view of social science and behavioral science. I'm a biomedical scientist, and I'll take a, an unashamedly biomedical perspective today to ask the question, why isn't everybody fat? What is it that makes some individuals resistant and some susceptible to obesity? And can we use that information to design better therapies for people with obesity? Contrary to what's often thought, obesity is not a new disease it seems unlikely that the Paleolithic sculpture of these figures was working entirely from imagination. Hippocrates, the great ancient Greek physician, had tremendous trouble managing his obese patients. He said they should eat only once a day, take no baths, sleep on a hard bed, and walk naked as long as possible. Cynics would say we haven't advanced very much further in the management of obesity. Daniel Lambert, the (coughs) Leicester jailer, uh, was a great 18th-century figure and the largest man in Britain of his time. And a similar 18th-century uh, physician, uh, Thomas Short, opined that no age had seen more instances of corpulency than our own. So, obesity is not a new disease, it's always been with us. But it has become more common in recent years. And there must be some explanations for this rapid increase in the secular uh, prevalence of obesity. I think these can be found in relatively simple explanations that most of us would understand. It's never been easier to ingest more calories. They're cheaper, they're more readily available and constantly available, they're put in retractive packages, they're advertised, and they're processed so they're less satiating and and easier to eat more of. We're also in an environment where we 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 expend less calories in both the workplace and in the domestic sphere. Other research has suggested perhaps other factors, like antibiotics or environmental pollutants, or indeed our antenatal environment, our our mother makes us fat, or our social networks, our friends make us fat. These are all tantalizing areas of research, but none have reached, I think, a level of maturity yet to impact on public uh, uh, health policy. The best evidence, I think, for the environmental determinants of obesity is when a population moves from a place where they have a low prevalence of obesity to a place of high Prevalence and where they acquire the prevalence of obesity of the place they've moved to. And that's happened with many migrant populations uh, uh, around the world. Uh, a slightly tongue-in-cheek uh, illustration of that is provided... is provided here. So, if we're living in such an obesogenic environment, why isn't everybody fat? I mean, if everybody had the same biology, as I suggest in the top two slides here, then if we really all have the same biology, perhaps lean people are morally superior. They just make the right choices and they keep themselves lean. And we should congratulate them. And the rest of us uh, are, are to be ashamed of the fact that we've not remained obese. Or they've just been lucky and they live in environments that tend to promote... promote leanness. Perhaps that's true. But I have another suggestion for you. Perhaps people have different underlying susceptibilities to being lean or obese. Now, that could either be impervious to environmental factors or could interact with them. In the rest of my talk today, I'm probably going to try and convince you, I hope, that people do have different underlying susceptibilities, but it also interacts with environmental factors. Genetics is extraordinarily important for most variable human traits, and adiposity is no exception. Uh, we all accept that height has a very strong heritable trait, but in fact, adiposity or the amount of body fat we carry is, not, although not quite as heritable as, as as height, is pretty heritable, more heritable, for example, than IQ. And we have very good data from identical versus non-identical twins, from adoption studies, and even remarkably from identical twins reared apart. Uh, here's a remarkable study done in... S- by American investigators, but in Sweden, uh, taking children who were born in Sweden in the 1950s and 60s, and who, as a a matter of policy in that era in Sweden, identical twins, or indeed twins in general, were separated at birth and brought up in different families. And what these investigators did was follow up (coughs) their body weights and and body compositions later in life to see if the individuals were more similar to the families that brought them up or more similar to the twins that they'd never seen or never interacted with. And rather remarkably, uh, Stunkard, who as a child psychiatrist, and was very surprised at this data, he had to conclude that the genetic influences on body mass index were profound, and they could find no evidence of the childhood environment. In other words, there was no similarity between individuals and the siblings they grew up with, but profound and very strong similarities of body weights and fat with the individuals that they had shared genetic identity uh, with. And here, from a different paper, is just a picture that helps you really get your head around this importance of Heritability. On the left-hand side, on the bottom, are pairs of sisters. And they're sisters who are born on the same day, but they're sisters, i.e. they're twins, but they're twins who only share 50% of their genes. And like you and your brothers and sisters, you all come in different shapes and sizes, and so do they. But look on the right-hand side, and look at individuals who share 100% of their... of their genome, as identical twins, because they're identical twins, and see the remarkable similarities in height, body composition, body shape, body amount of fat. It'd be hard to look at those pictures and say, oh, I don't think heredity is terribly important in determining how uh, much body fat uh, you have. So, how do we determine how much... Uh, how is it determined how much uh, adipose tissue one has? And indeed, the causes of obesity are actually rather simple. Our, we store uh, uh, energy largely as fat and our energy stored is equal to our energy intake minus our energy expended over a period of time. But of course, we don't necessarily uh, have to store all that excess energy as, as fat. We can store it as non, uh, fat tissue. I've often had a dream that I could go out for a big curry in the evening and instead of putting on weight on my waistline, I could put it into a vigorous beard growth that I could cut off in the morning. But sadly, my body is not designed that way. Our body is designed to store fat in fat tissue. It's the professional storage tissue that's there to be able to store fat efficiently, because adipose tissue, triglyceride, is a very efficient uh, store with very little water, so we can store it at the, at the lowest possible weight. Uh, and, and, uh, and store it so that it can be released slowly when we need it, when we... in our evolutionary terms, when we went through periods of less availability of, uh, of, of energy. So, we get through a remarkable amount of food in our lifetimes. And we don't get through the same amount every day. We have oscillations throughout the day of, of availability and, uh, uh, and, w- and what we do and our physical activity. And yet, we don't tend to oscillate in weight between supermodels and and, and, and opera divas. We tend to stay (coughs) within relatively uh, stable uh, 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 parameters, most of us. And so, that implies that there must be some form of regulation (coughs) going on. And the first clues for that came from uh, experiments in rats done by both Gordon Kennedy in Britain and workers in the United States in the 1940s and 50s, when they did very simple experiments. So, if you take a rat... a rat basically grows constantly, doesn't really stop growing. So, if you see a big rat, it's an old rat. Uh, and uh, if you take a rat and deprive it of 50% of its calories, and, and, and it will lose weight, and you then put it back in its original cage with, a, with, a, with its abundant food, and it rapidly eats <coughs> and gets back to exactly where it would have been on the trajectory if you'd let it go there in the first place. So, it knows where it wants to be in terms of its amount of energy storage. And these are really the first very simple but clear experiments that there was something controlling the amount of energy stores in, a, in the mammalian body. What organ in the body do we think is sensing those? What, 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 would go- what organ, if it went wrong, would, would those energy storing mechanisms... Uh, 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 where, where, would, where would that impact be? Well, we learned that first, I think, from German physicians in the 19th century, who had patients who developed tumors in the hypothalamus. And those patients went from being lean to being obese, to being overeating, so-called hyperphagic. Uh, And when they died, they discovered that they had tumors in this specific area of the brain, the hypothalamus. The first pointer to the fact that this was the area of our bodies which was concerned with the long-term regulation of our body weight. And to take that science further, scientists in the early part of the last century tried to create lesions in this tiny area of the brain, the hypothalamus. And by... if you... if you lesion the middle bit, the so-called medial hypothalamus of a rat or mouse, you get an animal that eats a huge amount and becomes very fat. If you move the needle's micrometers to the side and lesion the lateral parts of the hypothalamus, you can create a perfectly healthy animal that will drink and interact and... see, but will will never eat again, will never initiate an eating behavior. So, this tiny bit of the brain is crucially important for the control of eating behavior. I think the crucial first experiment in the modern obesity era was really done by by Harvey, a scientist here in... in... in Cambridge, in a small lab in the center of town. And he did a so-called parabiosis experiment. He connected the circulations of young rodents so that hormones could pass through from one to the other. And then, in one of the rodents, he lesioned the hypothalamus in order... in order to make... in order to make it overeat and become obese. And he wanted to know what would happen to the other animal. And indeed, what happened to the other animal is it stopped eating, or lost interest in eating, and lost a huge amount of weight. And that led him to contro- con- con- consider... Con- led him to conclude that there must be a circulating factor which is present in excess in obesity, which is suppressing food intake in an otherwise healthy animal. This, <coughs> this technique was then applied to genetically obese forms of animals in the Jackson Laboratories at Bar Harbor, Maine, where... which, w- which was an animal which used to keep colonies of various uh, spontaneous mutants in mice. And what Coleman showed is, by doing this cross-circulation experiment, one of those very obese forms of mice could effectively be cured by whatever was being produced by a normal mouse passing across the circulation and curing the OB-OB mouse. It took the power of modern (coughs) molecular genetics, and another further 20 years, for the discovery of what was causing that obesity in the Obi-Obi mouse, and that was the lack of a circulating hormone called leptin. There was a genetic mutation which blocked the action of leptin, and this caused this mouse to be more than twice the weight of its siblings. Leptin, remarkably, was produced by only by adipose tissue. It's made in fat cells. It, it's made the bigger a fat cell becomes, the more it, leptin it makes. Leptin goes and acts in... predominantly in the brain, indeed, predominantly in the hypothalamus, where it decreases food intake, increases thermogenesis, and decreases... uh, sorry, increases physical (coughs) activity. So, remarkably, this was the first example, really, of understanding that the brain had a signal that was given to it by the body to keep it informed of its long-term state of nutritional storage. The last 20 years has seen a huge acceleration in pace of our understanding of signals that go to the brain and keep it informed about nutrients. The leptin is a long-term signal. It provides long-term information about how much energy we have stored. On the other hand, our gut is full of endocrine cells, full of hormonal-producing cells. And they sense how much we eat in an individual meal, and indeed help sense what the constituents of those meals are, in terms of protein, fat, carbohydrate. And that complex of signals coming through (coughs) really gives us the minute-to-minute information about what we've been eating (coughs) and bringing that that information to the brain. In work we did ourselves in Cambridge with our colleagues Frank Ryman and Fiona Gribble, we added, more recently, to that list of hormones through the the peptide insulin, uh, like 5. discoveries are already impacting on clinical practice. One such hormone, GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1, is now an effective anti-obesity therapeutic. One of the first forms of this, so-called eragulotide, here you see in a slide a dramatic effects of body weight, reducing 10% reductions in body weight over a... over a year study in individuals given this analogue of GLP-1. And newer analogues of this are proving even more... Uh, powerful and, indeed, there are now oral analogues uh, in development, uh, which should uh, be much more... Wi- get, gain much more widespread use as effective anti-obesity agents. What about the long-term storage signals? I've only shown you data so far in mice. Is this a mouse-specific phenomenon? Well, that's where my lab came in, and back <coughs> more than 20 years ago uh, 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 now, we discovered uh, 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 the first humans who had disruptions in these pathways, the disruptions in the pathways of uh, long-term energy... uh, long-term signalling from... in the leptin system, including children on the right who lack leptin, and an individual on the left who lacks a signal downstream of leptin uh, within the... within the brain. And those first discoveries, those first two families we studied, really opened up an era of... of... of great excitement for us, where we decided to focus on the study of severely obese Children and see if we could find more of the, of these children and whether they all had these lesions or other types of defect. And I was joined around that time by my wonderful colleagues who are still in Cambridge: Sadafaruki, Gilesio, Tony Kaul, and we had an exciting journey <clears throat> discovering these new genetic conditions uh, resulting in obesity. We and indeed other groups around the world made much uh, 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 many advances in the early uh, uh, 2000s in discovering such uh, conditions. The key messages, really, are twofold. We didn't know where these obesity genes would be acting. But when we discovered them, we found that they were largely expressed in the brain. the second (coughs) thing we discovered is that when we studied the children who carried these genetic mutations, they weren't predominantly becoming obese because they weren't burning off calories. They were predominantly becoming obese because they ate too much. They had a profound appetite drive. They were not satiated by the same amount of food as their wild-type siblings, the siblings carrying the normal genes. Here in black, for example, is the food intake per le- kilogram of lean mass in, 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 in normal, control children. And in matched children, of s- you know, similar degrees... Uh, 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 similar ethnicities and similar ages, who have defects in the leptin pathway. And these children with defects just eat hugely more food at a test meal than those children uh, who have uh, wild-type genes. So, this has caused... I think... uh, it's it's, it's been a hard concept to get across, because these are genetic conditions, but they're genetic conditions not so much affecting metabolism, but affecting a behavior. And we often, as human beings, are uncomfortable about the idea that our behavior is not entirely under our own control. So, these uh, are are primary single-gene disorders that cause their problem, by influencing how much we eat and how much we want to, to eat. <clears throat> over the last 10 years, the leadership in this area has been taken over and, and, and handed over to Sadaf Faruqi, who's worked closely with our colleague Inez Barroso. And she and others around the world have continued to discover uh, uh, genes... Uh, more genes, the disruption of which causes... cause obesity. One of the criticisms we had when we first started to present this was that many people who were skeptical about the biology of obesity said, well, this may be relevant for these rare children, but is it relevant at all for common obesity around the world, the variation in... in amount of fat that we have in a... in a... you know, if you take a crowded bus or a... or a theater, how... you know, people ranging from thin to fat, how... how relevant is genetics in those circumstances? Well, over the last decade or or more, we've started to be able to answer that question through the study of large volunteer populations, hundreds and indeed hundreds of thousands of people, and now the power to be able to interrogate the broader genome for all its variation, or at least the majority of its variation. Here's one early example, I think a rather beautiful one. It's been... it's been uh, uh, only strengthened by subsequent work. (coughs) And... and in this... Uh, Paper over 300,000 people with information on their body mass index, their amount of adiposity, has been... has been... has been studied. And 97 variants around the genome have been associated unequivocally, with very high p-values, associated with... with BMI. Now, those genes sit in certain parts of the genome. They influence gene expression. They influence gene expression in certain tissues. And that can be calculated. So, what we have on the x-axis of this graph is a range of tissues. And, 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 and we're going to show you in a moment where those genetic SNPs are mostly affecting gene expression. Obesity could, you imagine, might be due to excess digestion of fat or, or hormonal problems. They could be predominantly in the digestive or endocrine system. But our single gene disorders suggested the brain was very important. And you won't be surprised, therefore, to see that the nervous system is the place where this genetic variation is having its most profound effect. And that takes me to a lovely study of Jane Wardle, a a collaborator and old friend who very tragically died far too young a couple of years ago. And Jane was a clinical psychologist. And she developed beautiful questionnaires that she could give to young children and families of... parents of young children that effectively predicted the development of obesity based on their responsiveness to food cues or their responsiveness to satiety cues. And these were very strongly predictive of... of uh, their later development of obesity. And with the development of modern genetics, Jane and her colleagues were able to layer on (coughs) studies of genetic variation. And in this very nice study, she showed here that the genetic variation that results in decreased satiety responsiveness really maps on beautifully to the genetic variation that maps on to adiposity. So, really making, almost for the first time, the link between genes, a behavior, responsiveness to satiety cues, and finally the amount of adipose tissue one has. And adapting a further st- slide of, 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 of Jane's, I'll just give you this slide to end this particular part of the talk. Because people often say, well, you know, it must be all environment because when there's a famine, you know, nobody gets fat. And it's true. We cannot get obese if, the, if you're in a famine. But of course, as soon as you get into areas of even adequate nutrition, there will be some individuals who are going to be highly susceptible to obesity and will develop obesity. And as we are now, in an abundant or superabundant climate, even those with average genetic susceptibilities are developed... are becoming uh, obese. And those with strong susceptibilities find it extremely difficult to avoid obesity. And what the precise work we've done, defining the nature of the genes, suggests is that those genetic variants are affecting appetite genes predominantly. And that should, I think, influence our public policy in terms of making the environment less obesogenic and less uh, providing continual stimulus to food <coughs> in- 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 intake uh, throughout our daily lives. What about therapy? Well, we had an enormous privilege and pleasure in discovering that the kids we... Dis- we, we, we uh, in-, in whom we found congenital leptin deficiency could be wonderfully and quickly uh, returned totally to normal by daily injections of the peptide leptin. see here on the left-hand side an example of a very obese child returning to to normal. We can do this much quicker now and much more aggressively. We can get children back to normal weight within uh, a few months, six months, maybe. Um, So, on the right, I think, is one of the most elegant experiments that I was involved in with my colleagues Salah Faruqi and Paul Fletcher and Ed Bullmore and others. And that's when we were able to study some adolescent congenitally leptin-deficient children who'd never seen leptin. So, you show them pictures of... Food and you put them in an MRI scanner to look at areas of brain activation. And if you show them pictures of non-food, not very much happens. If you show them pictures of food, whether it's a burger or broccoli, <coughs> the areas of the brain that are con- concerned with addiction and reward light up like a beacon. So, huge activations compared to nor- normal individuals in those areas of the brain, irrespective of the type of food stuff but within three days of giving them leptin injections. And remember, they haven't lost any weight by this stage. They're completely the same weight as they were before. You can see from the black and the white bars there, that activation disappears completely. So, here we have a little molecule coming from our fat cells, going all the way to our brain and having profound influences on how our brain is thinking and perceiving, even visual images. So, all of you listening here, this is happening in you right now, because everybody who has no leptin is essentially a food-seeking missile. The absence of... of, of leptin turns your brain entirely into the... Th- thinking about food. So, we think that maybe we're... we're very unconscious of our leptin action. But believe me, if you didn't have any, you wouldn't really be watching this... Uh, uh, video. you'd be... you'd be at your refrigerator finding... finding food. Why, then, is leptin not a blockbuster drug for obesity? It's phenomenally effective in the kids with congenital leptin deficiency and, indeed, in children with congenital lipodistribute who have no adipose (laughs) tissue. That's perhaps, I think, down to its dose-response curve. A lot of hormones act a bit like Model 1 here. The more hormone you give, the more effect you have. But with leptin probably because of its evolutionary origins as a signal of starvation rather than necessarily a signal of plenty. When your leptin drops, it's a bit like uh, 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 the dog that didn't bark in the... Sherlock Holmes' dog that didn't bark in the night. It does its most important signaling in its absence rather than its presence. So, the drop of leptin down to the bottom (coughs) of the scale really sets off a screaming signal in the brain. And when you reverse that, you get a big effect. You go from no leptin to some leptin, you get a a fantastic effect. But as soon as you're into the normal range, it flattens off greatly. So, treating regular obese people with leptin hasn't worked terribly well, and it has not become a blockbuster drug. But I think there is some hope for an extension of of leptin agonism as as a therapeutic. Partly this comes from uh, work we did (coughs) on data from an Amgen clinical trial, which they... Uh, was the first clinical trial in regular obesity, and they did not think that it was commercially viable, given the effects overall. But if you look at the data in a post-hoc way, and you look at the very bottom bar here, are individuals who are at the lowest um, <coughs> level of starting leptin. Individuals who had leptin levels that were very low for their degree of obesity to start with had a much bigger impact uh, than individuals who had mod- moderate or, or high levels of, of leptin. And do such people... are such people around in... in, in, in Uh, in general populations. Here's some data locally from my colleague Nick Wareham and his Fenland study (coughs) of of over 10,000 people and leptin measured in in, in them all. You can see out there, beyond the red bar, are obese people. And in that obese group, there are certainly subsets of small numbers with really profoundly low (coughs) uh, leptin levels. And if those individuals could be targeted for leptin therapy, that might mean that leptin is a much broader therapeutic uh, uh, compound than it currently is. The field of obesity therapeutics based on this system is is gathering pace. Here's a drug set melanotide, a melanocortin 4 receptor agonist that is essentially the next message along from leptin action within the brain. And this is given to an individual who lacks or indivi- two individuals who lack uh, that that message who are extremely uh, obese uh, as shown on the left the, the top two gra- patient patients graphs on the left showing their weight and here on the r- on the right are... in the the solid line is the body weight in response to using daily injections of this uh, artificial ligand. And in both cases, the weight goes down phenomenally. There's a a cessation of weight loss when individuals uh, have stopped therapy for a short period, for a different reason, and the weight went back up. Uh, Their appetite scores are shown in the blocks. And you can see that... that this is having a really profound effect. So, metroleptin is, is... is only useful at the moment in a very small number of individuals. This agent is being tested more widely in broader obesity, and there are other agents currently being developed around the area of leptin action and leptin resistance. So, much uh, going on in the field at the moment. So, in the final part of my talk, I'll ask about the biology of obesity and its relevance to obesity as a public health problem. I mean, is obesity, for example, like smoking? We've done very well on... on on smoking. Uh, We've done well on smoking by individual and population behavior through a range of, uh, of techniques, informing, facilitating, incentivizing, even coercing uh, <coughs> individuals with smoking, and we've made a big impact. But the difficulty with <coughs> obesity is that food is the, is the issue, not cigarettes. And we all have to eat, so it's not as simple as simply stopping a, a single behavior. I think a more useful analogy is that of hypertension. When I was a young doctor, the wards I, I, I used to walk were full of patients with the uh, end-stage consequences of uncontrolled and undetected hypertension. And now, as a doctor, I rarely see that in the hospital wards. It's a problem that effectively has been, not, if, not, if not cured, but hugely ameliorated. So, how did we do that over, over a, a time period... a relatively short uh, time period? Well, let's look at hypertension, and let's compare it with obesity. Hypertension is simply the high end of a blood pressure uh, distribution and obesity, the high end of an adiposity distribution, and we choose an arbitrary cutoff point at a at a point at which we know you get adverse health benefits to the right of that of that curve, uh, adverse health disbenefits to the right of that curve. But if we look at what we've done with hypertension, we can take a historical perspective. We can uh, look at the. 1940s, or even before the 1940s, and the only thing you could really do with someone with severe hypertension was give them a low-salt diet, the so-called rice diet. Intolerable beyond a few weeks. People really hated it. It did bring their blood pressures down, but it didn't... they really couldn't tolerate it. Then, in the 1940s, (coughs) surgical approaches were taken, cutting the sympathetic chain in the neck. Yes, could be effective, but cause severe postural hypotension. Some people could never stand up again. Then, in the 1950s, Drugs were developed with severe side effects. They did have some efficacy, but they were very toxic. Gradually, some better drugs started to be developed. And then in the 70s and 80s, we began to understand more about the physiology of blood pressure control, the role of the kidney, the role of the renin-angiotensin system. And now, from 70s onwards, we have a panoply of different drug agents, all targeted largely on disease mechanism, and now available uh, as generic and cheap Uh, Agents And really, effectively, there's almost nobody whose blood pressure cannot be controlled by an effective combination of those drugs. So, is there an analogy with obesity? I think there is. We can, like the low-salt diet, demand that people take extremely demanding diets and exercise. And many people can for short periods of time, but it becomes very difficult to sustain that over long periods of time. We can undertake bariatric surgery, probably underused in this country. It is very effective in severe uh, cases. But nonetheless, not really applicable across the board. Then we went through a phase of developing drugs which either didn't work or, if they did work, were very toxic. So that was a very bad phase of anti obesity drug development. But now, a bit like hypertension, we're beginning to get to agents which may uh, start to be used more widely and with it, which have a reasonable efficacy and safety and profile. So we need as we did with high blood pressure, for obesity we need a multidisciplinary approach. Approach For high blood pressure we got success through a combination of public health policies, including salt intake uh, policies, and screening and finding individuals with high blood pressure, and the combination of drugs to treat them properly. And they're now generic, cheap, and can be effectively combined. I think, similarly, for obesity, we're going to need strong public health measures focused on prevention, And we're going to need the selective use of cheap, safe, effective and safe medications, probably in combination. But to uh, develop the latter, we're going to need a much deeper understanding of the molecular physiology of human energy balance. And I hope I've given you some flavor of the advances we've made in that area today. I'd like to finish by thanking colleagues and collaborators, referring physicians, our funders but particularly the patients participants and families without whom we would not have had a research program in this area thank you for your attention visit us at ibiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists funding is provided by the national science foundation and the national institute of general medical sciences